Let's pray before we come to God's word. Father, thank you that you have done great things through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you've given him to us uh, to die on the cross to forgive our sins. Father, pray that we, as a result of this morning, would love him better and serve him uh, better too. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Signing a contract used to be a big deal. I remember when I was younger signing my first proper contract. It was for a Nokia 3310. Uh, I was 18. And uh, I was so glad I'd been practicing my signature for ages. And I was so glad to be able to put my signature that I've been practicing uh, to good use. And in those days, you actually had to go and, and get the contract in person and actually physically sign it. That was long before the days of e-signatures and all that. And uh, the document seemed, from memory, to be something like 18 pages long. And I remember that, you know, because it was my first one, I went through the whole thing, uh, read every single word, just in case, you know, there were those hidden clauses in that accidentally sold my life away or something like that. But nowadays, you just sort of tick a box on the screen, don't you, uh, to sign a contract. It's tick and done. Read the terms and conditions? Well, whoever does that now? It's just tick and go. And all the pageantry, all the excitement has gone. Even signing for a house isn't what it used to be. It's just all waiting for e-transfers and, and all that to go through. Fewer glasses of champagne and more headache tablets uh, ready for those kind of things. But agreeing to a contract or covenant or a deal is different in the 21st century. It's very different from the time that we read about here in our passage this morning. For those who haven't been around last time we were in Exodus in June... And we've got to the end of a big section in Exodus. Moses has ascended to Mount Sinai and God has given him the Ten Commandments verbally. Along with that, he's given him laws on altars, slavery, compensation, festivals, and all sorts of uh, different things. All those talks are online, I'm not going to go recap them all uh, this morning. But in our passage here, Moses is sent back down to tell the people what's been said. We see it in verses 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near them, uh, uh, shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come up near him, and the people shall not come up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So Moses has gone back down, and the people here are to agree to what God has said to them. And Moses uh, is to come partway then back up the mountain with some leaders. And this is the signing of the contract, so to speak, before it's set in stone, quite literally. And the ceremony and the pomp, it's quite alien to us now, isn't it? This isn't what we do when we sign a contract. There is one exception still, which is a wedding. A wedding, if you think about it, has a lot of pomp and ceremony for making an agreement or a contract. I didn't deliberately put this in with the Isaac and Rebecca thing, that's just worked out as it is this morning. But I think it's easier to think of our passage today in terms of that kind of a deal, that kind of a contract, in terms of a wedding. It's not spoken of it in that way here, but elsewhere God speaks of his people as his wife. Indeed, when they betray him later on in Exodus, their punishment will have a striking similarity to the test for adultery. So let's start first of all with the vows and the ceremony. Let me read to you verses three to six, uh, sorry, three to eight again. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, 
all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses here speaks the word of the Lord to them, and he writes it down, presumably what we've got all the way from chapter 19 to here. We're going to see as we go through the book of Exodus and through the Bible that God's speaking is the way that he reveals himself to his people. Actually here it's written down though, so that the people can uh, still have access to it afterwards. This is something that's going to uh, pass on to future generations that all might know uh, him and his commandments. And the word of the, God, the word of the Lord performs the basis for all that follows, doing what God has said. Moses builds an altar. He's been told how to do so in chapter 20. It's the first instruction after the Ten Commandments. He also builds 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses then has some young men offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. There's no proper priesthood at this point, and the young men take on this position. Presumably, it's partly because butchering the number of animals and offerings that they would need is not really an old man's job. They offer sacrifices uh, in quite a bloody way by by breaking up uh, dead bodies of animals. So something for more for a a young man uh, to do. They offer sacrifices that were known in the Near East, and God will define them for his own purpose later on in Leviticus. But the choice of sacrifices here is not incidental. There are burnt offerings and there are peace offerings. Burnt offerings in general were to deal with sin. They would be burnt up completely, that's why they're called a burnt offering. As though they were burnt by the very wrath of God. The people's sin must be dealt with before they can go on, so burnt offerings are necessary. Peace offerings, on the other hand, were a whole other ball game. Peace offerings were to do with broken fellowship, either between people or between people and God. Peace offerings were there for reconciliation, for peace, for a renewal of fellowship. They were different from all the other offerings because those offerings were to be eaten by the worshippers afterwards. So all the other ones, would something else would happen to them, but these in part were given back to the worshipper. Normally part of it was burnt in whole as though consumed by God, and then some was consumed by the priests, and the rest was given back to the people, that they might eat it as a fellowship meal. And given the context, this is probably what they are sharing on the mountain. This is what they're going to take up with them. A fellowship meal from the sacrifices made on the altar. So the sacrifice here not only deals with their sin, but it provides for their feast. We'll come back to that in a minute. But these sacrifices are there for dealing with sin and restoring relationship. And that is exactly what is needed for these people under the old covenant. But it's also exactly what Christ would come to fulfil in the new covenant as well. Dealing with sin through sacrifice, through the sacrifice of himself. Restoring relationship through that sacrifice too. Providing his own body for a meal for the worshippers to feed on by faith. 
a fellowship meal, a communion meal. But we've never thought about communion in that way, but it, it follows in that pattern. It is a little different though. They would eat the sacrifices, but they would not drink the blood. The blood represented life and belonged to the Lord for his purposes. And that part was to be used in the ceremony, if you like. A bit like rings would be used in a wedding, but a much more bloody version of that. Half the blood from the sacrifices is to be taken and thrown on the altar. This happens throughout the sacrifices in Leviticus, the altar representing God's side of the covenant. Both sides will have their sprinkling of blood, but here at the inauguration of the covenant, it's, it's here on the altar first of all. A token in blood, like a token in rings. And like rings signify promises, here the blood signifies that God will keep his promise. Often animals were killed uh, as part of making a covenant. That was the case with the covenant with Abraham. God got Abraham to kill uh, some animals and cut them in half. God then appeared to Abraham in a vision and walked between those animals to show that uh, he was uh, committing himself to the deal. Normally both parties would walk through them, but in the vision only God did. It was a one-sided covenant. God would keep his promises whatever might happen. And the implication of killing those animals was, if I break the covenant, so be done to me. And the implication here seems to be the same. This is a covenant made in blood. And it being thrown in the side of the altar shows God will keep his side. Unlike the covenant with Abraham, though, the people also have their side of the bargain <coughs> to keep up. Moses, in verse 7, reads out the words of the covenant to the people, the, the terms and conditions, if you like. They're the vows. And do you notice, the people essentially say, I do. That's what they're doing. It's almost like a wedding ceremony. We will. Now, they've definitely heard the terms and conditions, more than we have when we click those boxes, as I was talking about before. Whether they truly understand the implications of them is ambiguous. After all, the Israelites have not done so great in obeying God. To be fair, humankind has not done so great in obeying God since the garden, have we? If we couldn't cope with one rule in the garden, then how will they cope with the 50 plus rules that Moses has just told them? But they agree to do it, and half the blood is thrown on the people. Now some people think that the blood was thrown on the pillars representing the people. That sort of makes it a little less gory sounding. But it doesn't say that, it says that it's thrown on the people. And Hebrews 9 uh, here is helpful for that. This is the New Testament speaking of that uh, event. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness <coughs> of sins. The New Testament there tells us in Hebrews that water and hyssop branches and scarlet wool were involved. So it's possible that it literally went out to all the people. They were spread with water and, uh, and wool to all the people to show that all of them were part of this covenant. And all the people, therefore, together say, oh, I, I do. We agree. And Moses, in verse 8, pronounces them in a covenant together, a bit like the way that a minister pronounces uh, someone husband and wife. 
They're now bound to one another. And they're both bound to this covenant. A covenant sealed in blood. But we've been hearing in Galatians that we're not under this covenant. We've been doing a series in Galatians recently. But we are still in a covenant sealed in blood. Blood that we partake in. It's gruesome imagery, but we, we see it in our hymns. We nearly sang this morning, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. It's that same sort of picture. We'll share communion in a little while. And if you think of that, we are drinking a cup representing Christ's blood. A cup of blood is, is pretty gruesome imagery, isn't it? But as we read here, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the application of that blood, there is no forgiveness for the individual. So think about the households in Egypt during the Exodus, uh, when they were coming out. It was not enough for the lamb to be slain. That blood had to be applied to the doorposts. And here the sacrifices have been made, but they had to be applied to the people. And it poses the question back to us. We talk about Christ's sacrifice, of Christ's blood, but has that blood been applied to, to me, to you? Have we been sprinkled by his blood? Do we know that forgiveness that comes through the shedding of blood as an individual? What do I mean by that? Well, again, Hebrews is helpful. Uh, Hebrews 9, uh, 13 to 14. For the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It shows us there that Christ's blood is better blood. Christ's blood can make us clean. Christ's blood can cleanse our conscience. Christ's blood inaugurates a better covenant than the one they had here. More like the one they had with Abraham, where the terms and conditions are fulfilled by him alone through Christ. A new covenant in his blood. A new marriage between Christ and the church. That's what we're seeing here. And just like the wedding that we go to normally, the pomp of the pageantry isn't over yet. Because at a wedding, there's also a wedding banquet. Let me read you verses 9 to 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. <clears throat> In the ancient world, an agreement, a treaty, a covenant would be solemnised by a meal, as you would with a wedding, with a wedding banquet afterwards. Or if you think about those international treaties that get signed, there's always that posh meal afterwards, isn't there, where they all sort of dress up uh, and have that big banquet. It's a visible sign of fellowship and of a new partnership, a sort of shaking hands in edible form. And here is no difference. Here they eat with God. They eat in God's presence. God invites Moses and the other leaders to a meal. As I said before, it's likely that the food that they're eating is at least in part the food from the peace offerings earlier. They were called that because uh, they often make peace between people. They're fellowship offerings for a fellowship meal. And a meal is a big deal in the Bible, who you eat with. Jesus was heavily criticised for whom 
he had meals with. Sitting down at table with someone was a big deal. He was accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners, as though that was an accusation. In Galatians, we're told that the church in Antioch was nearly torn apart by people refusing to eat at the same table as each other. So who you eat with is a big deal. Well, here, the people are sharing fellowship with God. That in itself is incredible. What we're getting here really is a picture, a glimpse of heaven, of of eternity. I think we're supposed to see that with phrases like in verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. And verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. This is supposed to be something that belongs to the end of time. So uh, 1 John uh, 3 verse 2, but we uh, know that when he appears at the end, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Seeing God now should be impossible. Moses is told in a few chapters of time that he can only see God's back because if he sees his face, he will die. And yet we're told here that they see God. It sounds like this is glory, this is the end, this is the goal. There's a sense in which this is the end breaking into history. We're seeing a glimpse ahead of time. It sounds like that's from what's written and it's supposed to do. But if you read it carefully, what they're actually seeing is a bit more nuanced. Do you notice, for example, they spend more time describing the strange translucent pavement under his feet? It's almost as if that's all they can really see, sort of looking up. A blue pavement in God's feet. As though, you know, when you sort of walk under those overhead walkways and sort of look up. There's no mention of seeing his face. As I said, Moses is told later that he can't see God's face and live. They're seeing not his face, but his feet through a semi-transparent pavement. Clear as the sky doesn't mean completely see-through like our glass. It's more like tinted glass, stained glass, without blemish, but still not entirely transparent. They see the bottom of his feet through a semi-transparent walkway. And yet, Moses still has to note that God did not lay a hand on them, as though even the sight of this should have been enough to strike them dead had God somehow not kept them alive. God enabled them to see in part and enjoy fellowship with him in part to give them a glimpse of what is to come for his people. But one day, we shall indeed feast with God, not just in part and not just under his feet. It's foretold in Isaiah 25. It says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make uh, for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day, behold, that this uh, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. One day, we will see God. And on that day, every tear will be wiped from our eyes. On that day, death will be swallowed up in victory. 
And on that day, we will feast with Christ. It's no coincidence that so often, when you look at eternity in the Bible, it's pictured like a great banquet. The parable of the great feast in Luke 14. The parable of the marriage feast in Matthew 22. Even in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, they're locked out of a wedding feast that everyone else is enjoying. And in Revelation 19 verse 9, uh, we're told, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we see later on the church dressed as a bride, with emerald courts and sapphire skies. But here is just a glimpse as they feast on the mountain, looking up through the pavements and surviving. But it's a glimpse that gives us hope for the future. Are you looking forward to that day when we will feast when we will feast with Christ. I am. It's going to be amazing. But the day here on Mount Sinai is not over. God's got work for Moses to do as registrar, so to speak, of this wedding. And so our last point, a certificate signed in stone. Let me read to you from verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of God was like the devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses is to ascend up the mountain to meet with God in a a fuller way. Again and again in Exodus, we see that not everyone is allowed access to God. Only one person truly gets access to God, really, Moses. And that means that people must go through Moses to get to God. In Exodus, they sort of have this three-tier entry. You've sort of got the people, the elders, and Moses, with Joshua. We'll come back to that in a second. And it will be repeated as he gives the law. We'll have the people, the priests, and the high priests. And it sort of goes up in availability and access to God. And just as Moses goes through the cloud to get there, so there's a cloud of incense in the tabernacle that the high priest must go through. And it shows us really, for all the wonderful experience the elders got, it was but a glimpse, a shadow, a foretaste. There's a reminder here that the way is not yet open at this point for all his people. Moses alone could go on ahead, and through what's what's to come, he takes uh, Joshua with him. How far, whether he goes right to the top, we're not told. But we know that Joshua will go on to do what Moses has done. And God will then formalise the agreement in stone. What Moses will receive are two tablets of stone. And the fact that they're written in stone highlights the permanence and certainty of the agreement. If you think, if you write something in stone, it's not going to easily pass away. Or so you would think. And God himself will write the commandments on the stone. They'll be written by the very finger of God. No chance of copying errors. No chance of Moses writing down something different. 
There are advantages of God doing it himself, and there are advantages to God doing it in stone. And yet we know, don't we, how dangerous it is to write things in stone. Agreements are bound by those things, but sometimes they can't be kept. I can't help but think at this point of Ed Miliband. Uh, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, I'm not going to get too political. Um, but he uh, did, did this a few uh, years ago. Should be a picture of Ed Miliband with a, a stone behind him. Uh, they called it the Ed Stone. And he sort of wrote down his uh, agreements for uh, what he was going to do at the election. <coughs> it became known as the Ed Stone, like a headstone, like a tombstone. And that's what the Apostle Paul uh, takes on this incident too. So in 2 Corinthians, this is how he refers to this event. God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory uh, has come to have no glory at all. Um, uh, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Paul refers to what happens here as a, a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. Not that the law is bad, but that the law is only part of the picture. Again, we've been seeing this in Galatians. The law itself can only bring death. And in that, it's, it's like a tombstone uh, that uh, is there. It can only condemn, it cannot save. But as, as well as we've been seeing Galatians, it's supposed to lead us to Christ. It's supposed to lead us to the new covenant inaugurated by him. And what this is doing is the self-confidence of the Israelites must be stripped away. The pride and arrogance to think that we can ascend to heaven on our own effort must be brought down. And the law does that. And the law will do that. It does it to us too. It humbles us and shows us our faults, but it can't bring us life. These tablets of stone will end up being our tombstone if we think that we can live by them and use them to get to heaven. No, the righteous live by faith. We live under the ministry of righteousness, as Paul calls it, one that has lasting glory, one of a more permanent nature, even than that which was written on stone. A ministry through his spirit, which doesn't bring us death, but brings us life, eternal life through faith in Christ. But this is a certificate signed in stone for the people here. They bound themselves to it. And it will take the righteous life and perfect death of God's Son to get them out of this deal. He will fulfil the terms and conditions in a way that we never could. But what he offers us then is not divorce from God, so to speak, but a new relationship with him. A better one founded on what Hebrews 8 calls better promises. Promises of life and forgiveness. Promises of righteousness and peace with God. Promises of a permanent fellowship with the Father. Not a fleeting feast on a hillside, but forever with the Father in glory in the new creation. And that promise was sealed in blood, as we've seen. Not in the blood of lambs and goats, but in the blood of his own son. 
who would say to his disciples in Luke 22, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Echoing those words that we read here. And we're going to remind ourselves of that in a few moments' time. Now before we close, let's just think for a second. God would go through all of that, would commit himself to all of that, would send his son so that he might have a bride for his son. A bride that he can present spotless and blameless in his sight. And God's people are that bride. Christ has said, yes, amen, I do. And he sealed those vows in his own blood. If you're not a believer here this morning, have you said, I do, to Christ? Have you entered into that relationship with him? Have you taken up the promises of forgiveness and fellowship? Will you take him up on those promises of life together forever? And the wonderful thing for us this morning, if we are believers this morning, is that with a wedding, you know, you finish with, oh, oh, till death do us part. Well, do you know what? This is beyond that. This is something that starts now and goes on to eternity, even after death. Something more permanent than stone. Something more precious than gold. And a relationship that's so much more than a tick in a box. So let's pray that God would help us to recognise the amazingness of being in that relationship with him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this glimpse of heaven that we get here. Father, as we face a world that is uncertain, as we face a life that is often difficult, Father, keep us looking forward to that day. Keep us longing for that day when it won't be fleeting, when it won't be a glimpse, but Father, we will be with you forever. Father, help us to keep that in mind when we find it hard and sustain us in our walk with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our next song speaks of those emerald courts and sapphire skies that one day will be our home. So let's stand and sing, there is a higher throne. Give us a tap. It's not on.
I go to the Lord's table now, and this is a commemorative meal that reminds us of Christ's sacrifice for our sin. The bread reminds us of his body, and the cup reminds us of the blood that was shed, blood that we've been hearing can cover our sin. We feed on Christ by faith. Uh, the bread and the non-alcoholic wine don't change in form. I'm not a priest, this is not a sacrifice, but a reminder of that one sacrifice, uh, once and for all by Christ. His sacrifice was for sin, and that means this is a meal for sinners, for people who have failed. But it is a meal for sinners who have had their sin dealt with by Jesus, who have come to Jesus for forgiveness, who know the reality of that relationship with God through Christ that we've been speaking of this morning. Uh, if that's not you, uh, and you don't normally, if you're visiting with us and you don't normally take communion at your own church, then please do uh, let the uh, bread and the wine just pass you by and uh, uh, consider what we've been talking about this morning. I'm going to give thanks for the bread and the wine. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Christ's blood has dealt with our sin. Father, thank you that on the cross, Christ took our sin. He took your anger at our sin. And Father, that means that we can be forgiven. Father, that means that we can enter into that wonderful relationship with you and enjoy fellowship and peace with you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that his body was broken for us. We thank you that his blood was shed for our forgiveness. And Father, we pray that as we share this meal together, we will be thankful for all that you have done for us in Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.